0: I'm recording this in the midst of COVID-19 lockdown, which is an event that I guess will go down in history along with others that have affected the world psyche. But I'm also recording this on Holocaust Remembrance Day, another period in our relatively recent past that continues to leave an indelible mark on our collective memory for so many of us. This year, the restrictions imposed on all of us have meant that this special commemoration will be marked digitally only. And so it is with sublime timing, not intended I assure you, that I introduce you to today's wonderful guest. Her name is Ruth Posner. She was born in Warsaw, Poland and was 10 years old when World War II started. Her parents perished in Treblinka and she survived the war with her aunt under an assumed name, later coming to England after the war as a refugee, unable to speak a word of English. She married early in her life and enjoyed a career as a dancer, teacher and choreographer. And as an actress, she worked in six different countries, including New York. It would be fair to say that Ruth, now in her 90s and looking as sprightly as a woman half her age, has had an incredible life, full of some joyous moments, as well as tragedy, including the awful loss of her young son. Ruth was the last guest I was able to meet in person before the COVID restrictions were fully enforced. And I feel blessed to have had the chance to have sat down with her in her lovely London flat so that she could share her story with you. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is Your London Legacy. Before we meet this week's wonderful guest, here's a little something for you. If you're a fan of the show and would like to get involved and support us at Your London Legacy, and help us keep producing amazing content just for you, you can get involved over on our Patreon page. We take every penny and we will reinvest it back into the show. If you want to get involved and get hold of some really cool benefits, or have us create your very own London Legacy episode, or maybe meet up with us and other London Legacy lovers in London, you can do that too, over at www.patreon.com forward slash yourlondonlegacy. Okay, let's get on with the show. Well, I'm delighted today to say I'm in the the lovely, very very warm in here. I have to say, Ruth, very warm. Is it
1: really? Cozy. I can turn the heater off.
0: No, that's fine. It's fine. I'm good. I'm, I'm down to my t-shirt here, which is okay. not not bad for March. In the company of uh, Ruth Posner, I, I, how do you like to be described? You don't want to be call your you a, a dancer, a theatrical actor. Act, what you, actor, actress? What's the what's the politically correct word?
1: I never really thought about it. Well, I've had two careers in yes. my life. I started off as a dancer. Uh, I studied for quite a long time. And then I became the founder member of the London Contemporary Dance Company. So that was my first profession. I kind of uh, very much inside myself, and I almost didn't want to admit it, I was always interested in acting, but in view of my background and my experience, I also felt that it was slightly mm, frivolous and um, I wanted to do it, but I didn't do anything about actually doing Mm. it. And dance and movement is something which came very easily to me and um, I found this, this company and trained with them. So that was my first profession, until I got. A, I started quite late, by the way, and then I got a little bit. Well, the last thing I have done. Oh yes, I also taught physical theatre at RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, and Lambda. And when we lived in New York, I taught physical theatre at Juilliard School of Dance and Drama, and and then. As a sort of incredible experience, I went to Japan for two months because I saw the, the joint effort when dance meets drama mm-hmm. and how wonderful it could be. And I saw a Japanese theater company performing actually a Greek play based on Agamemnon. And I was absolutely bowled over by it. And there was an, this incredible synthesis of movement and drama, voice and body. And when I saw on the program, in the program, that they were actually uh, giving courses, summer courses, I decided, this is it. Before I die, this is what I'm going to do. And I did it. And, and, and the strange thing was that the first reply, that I got after my application was I stated my age and they said, ah, mmm,
0: pity. And what, what age were you at the time of your application? Well, at
1: that age I was in my forties. <laughs> and
0: <laughs> <laughs> Shall we give uh, listeners a shock? How old are you now compared to a- 91. <laughs> You're 91 now. Yeah,
1: well anyway, they said I was a little bit too old because the program is physically very demanding. okay, And that was it. And somebody actually said to me, but you must write back and say that you were trained in the Martha Graham technique. And Tadashi Suzuki, who was the director of the Japanese company, knew Martha Graham or heard about her. So that's what I did. And what, and was,
0: what was the technique? And why, why would that stand yeah. you in good stead?
1: It's very difficult to explain, but Martha Graham was a... Um, a dancer modern dancer which developed her own uh, technique which was against the classical ballet which we knew i mean we we if you talk about dance then there were two uh, styles you were either commercial dancer, which meant you were in musicals, for instance, but the basic dance training was classical ballet. Um, Martha Graham took it into a completely different direction and became extremely well-known. Mm-hmm. So when they heard that, they changed the mind in Japan said, ah, in that case, we invite you. So I spent two fascinating, fascinating months there. So anyway, so this was my as I said, my first profession, which I enjoyed very much. But when my husband at the time worked for UNICEF, so we were moved to New York. And here I decided, yes, it's about time to fulfill my childhood dreams. And um, I gave up dance, or rather it was giving me up, because by that time I was not, not young anymore, and uh, did a, a degree at Hunter College, which was sort of part of the NYU. So I did an MA in um, theatre. And um, since then, I sort of changed my career completely.
0: To becoming more of an actress?
1: Oh, yes, then yeah. I became an actress. You became an actress. I became an actress, yeah. and, and I was very lucky because when we came back to London, I met somebody It was a strange combination, a woman who ran her own theater company, a woman who uh, was a writer herself, and who was passionate, and that is a very interesting thing. She was passionate about Jewish history and the Second World War, mm. And we met by chance, actually, or she was giving a course, I think, on um, on Beckett and Chekhov that I very much wanted to do, and that's I went to do the course, and that's how we met. Mm. And um, I was so lucky, and she had written a play, actually for me, and um, extracted a lot of information from me and my story and created a really interesting play, which mm. we toured, and we even took it to Germany.
0: Well, clearly that defines a good part of who you are and your life. And in fact, when you said, I, I dance, I'm an actress, you also used the word that you thought it perhaps was a bit frivolous to, to pursue a career in in the arts.
1: To b- begin with. Is that because of,
0: well, uh, b- why is that?
1: well when i i came here with a very small children transport and um and that is an interesting story about but my life was full of coincidences and, and if you like i'll mention some of no, the coincidences yeah. but but let's start from from the end as it were so when i came here I was, there were, there were about six of us. It was very small children's transport. And we were asked what each one, each one of us wanted to do. Now, we were more or less the same age. And the others were very concerned with finding independence, and learning a profession, wanting to do something where they could rely on themselves. And I was not one of them. I very much wanted to go to school because I was really not educated. I was 12 or something like that when the war broke out. My school finished, and I always felt just very uneducated. And this was my aim, mm-hmm. go to school. And um, and I was lucky enough to live uh, in a, a hostel for refugees, they were very helpful in that. They were actually German, German Jews, and they arranged for me to go to school. Now, I didn't didn't know one word of English. So, of course, first of all, it was a question of learning a language, completely foreign language to me. But that was my decision. So when you talk about acting or wanting to be an actress, this is what I felt, no, that's too frivolous. That's what I want to do first, go to school.
0: Oh, I see. But if we just go a step back before you came over to the UK or to England, you're originally from Poland. Yes. Yeah. Talk, just tell us a little bit about what happened to you when you were in Poland? I think you were 10. Was it 10 when the war yeah. broke out in mm-hmm. Poland? And you were in Warsaw? just w- that, Walk us, a- yes. If you don't mind. No, if you, no, 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 not at just all. Just walk not us at through all. your story. Now, the
1: strange thing is that I will begin by saying that I never really wanted to talk about it. Mm. I did not want to talk about my background or about my story. I found it very painful. But I also found I never wanted to be a victim I didn't want to tell the story and have the feeling that people are going to be feeling very sorry for me, or some of the aspects of the story uh, were so fantastical, and as I said, so almost hard to believe in, that even when I tried to write about it, I thought, did it really happen? And I was busy getting on with my life. So... That wasn't my priority, I didn't want to talk about it. What changed my mind, and that is very sad, is what's happening politically that I never could believe. I I have this, and I still feel it, that we should learn from history. We should learn from experience. We should pass it on to our new generation. Mm-hmm. And what upsets me terribly is the fact that, alas, we don't.
0: So is it only recently you've started to be open? We
1: repeat the same mistake. There is a rise of anti-Semitism. There is a rise of anti-Semitism, let's face it, in the party that I voted for all my life. Uh, And for many different reasons. I mean, you know, anti-Semitism is the world's oldest hatred. And it goes back even be, before the Holocaust. We had blood libels in mm. the, in the 12th century.
0: In fact, I was as I'm driving. As, just so people know, we're recording this just before there's a lockdown on uh, people over over a certain age not being allowed to go out. And You're <laughs> going to fall into that category, Ruth. Yes. But as I was driving here in my car, they were talking about um, contagious diseases and illnesses mm. and how it that you know, we've got the coronavirus and how that's being blamed on certain ethnic groups f- yes. f- responsible. And they said, well, historically, other vi- other illnesses exactly. and plagues have been blamed on other people. Yes. And a, a famous one is the bubonic plague, which was, of course, blamed on the Jews.
1: Yes, of course, but, yeah, of course. <laughs> you know? I mean, th- this, in a way, in a, in a sort of strange way, it, um, or psychological way, if you like, the whole concept of hatred I find appalling and, and interesting. Why is it? I mean we hate it because we need a scapegoat. Mm. We hate something which is so different from us or slightly different. We hate because of our own insecurities for whatever the reason but as far as as, as the whole question of Holocaust and the history of it is concerned now, what actually? is even worse than that is denial mm. and denial of history. I mean, we know that history is taught in different ways, that different things are going to be stressed depending on who is teaching and to whom. Of course. We do know that. But when I read, you know, some People actually see. no, it didn't happen.
0: Well, it was a very good documentary on a few weeks ago with the, yes. um, David Badil, the documentary, yes. a comedian. Exactly. Yeah, it's just bizarre. That isn't that,
1: it? that really hits me so hard that I don't only not want, don't want to talk about it. I want to scream about yes. it because my generation, um, who experienced that, whose lives were changed, are not going to be here. Shortly. Yes. Who knows at my age how long?
0: Which is precisely why I wanted to, with yes. respect to you and your <laughs> wanted to come and see you y- and talk to you because y- there are not a yeah, great deal and of do survivors. I feel
1: extremely strongly yes. about this. That, that didn't happen. How can you say it? My whole life changed because of that. Yeah. My and strangely enough, and I again, I don't want anybody to weep for me, but now at my age, I feel it even stronger mm. because I lost everybody in my family. Yes. I lost my parents when I was twelve years old. Mm. You don't get over it.
0: When you look back on it, and we'll talk about the circumstances, you know, how you were in, moved into the ghetto and then you escaped from the ghetto. When you look back on it, does it seem somehow surreal? Can, do you look back on it and think, did this actually ha- How did this, ha- exactly. this happen? Is yes, this, real? this is very
1: true. It's very true. And I'm trying to uh, write about it when certain images came back to my mind, and I saw them very clearly. Mm. And then, when I put it down in print, I thought, well, actually, yes, mm. it did happen. It sounded it, as you said, surreal, but it did happen. And the shock, as far as I'm concerned, not that it would have been it wouldn't justify the action, but I didn't understand when I was young, living in in Poland and Warsaw, what? was happening because I came from a very secular family so yes my grandparents never visited us because we didn't keep kosher food
0: so your so your grandparents were orthodox
1: my grandparents were traditional traditional yes and
0: but your parents did not follow no the exactly, traditional orthodox exactly Eastern and European. so
1: They both worked very hard. My mother, who was not a very, not a typical sort of Jewish wife, she hated cooking. She was a designer. She used to design clothes and underwear for women. My father was very, very busy. And, well, religion didn't play a high. Well, something else I wanted to say. He was a humanist, he was a socialist, and there are sayings of his which I still remember, and this I have to tell you. Because my mother worked, as I said, she wasn't a great housekeeper, we had people who helped us. We had somebody who actually used to come and cook, and also somebody who used to help her in her work, and, and one of these ladies took me to church. and I think it must have been very close to Christmas. I was overwhelmed. I thought it was the most incredible place I ever found myself in. I love the church. I loved the choir of the angels. Mm. I like the smell of incense. I like the whole atmosphere. And I came back home and declared to my father, this is what I want. I want to be a Catholic. <laughs> Definitely.
0: That must have gone down well. And
1: I shall never to this day, when I said, I very much want to be a Catholic because it Mm. was so beautiful. And it was also very theatrical, and maybe that's what impressed me. My father's words were, you can be whatever you want, but, and there is one proviso, in order to make a choice, you have to have knowledge. You cannot make any choices without knowledge. So there is a lot to know. And maybe when you think about it and you learn about it, you will be more in a position to make a choice. At this stage, you can't. And they were the wisest, most wonderful words, and I shall never forget them. Mm. Mm. So the reason why I'm saying that is to just tell you that uh, the secular background in which I grew up what was shocking is the total lack of understanding what was happening. What was happening when Gestapo men came to us and gave us 15 minutes to pack and just take some hand luggage and follow them? I couldn't understand what was happening. Where
0: where were you physically at the time? Were you,
1: we were in our own home. W- which was
0: where, within, within Warsaw? Where yes. Home? Was it a suburb of or Warsaw? So, or no, in the it center? wasn't. It
1: wasn't in a in a. I mean, we weren't living in a ghetto. We, mm-hmm. were li- I mean, there were areas where it was mainly populated by Jews, but we were because we were very assimilated, and because of my mother's work, we lived in a in a sort of. Uh,
0: so you've got a clear recollection of yes. Gestapo soldiers coming into you, absolutely. officers coming into your home,
1: absolutely out of nowhere. I also remember something which is so hard when I think about it. My mother said to one of them, you wear a black uniform, but your heart isn't black, is it? And he hit her. And the look on her face signified shock that I was there to witness it. Mm
0: and you were how old 12 did you say yes 12, something 12 like old. that
1: i never i never quite remember so it maybe a, it's a sort of denial such a
0: traumatic moment it,
1: unbelievable so we were marched to the ghetto hmm.
0: was it with just your family or the several other families Well, from, we,
1: from that particular place it was only us because there were no other jews living in that area when we actually arrived to the ghetto and that area we came in contact with Jews that we were never in contact with. Not all of them, but some of them were very religious. Some of them were, you know, wearing big hats mm. and had payotte. yeah. And, uh, and we, we were never really in contact with people like this. I'm not saying it in any derogatory mm. way. It was just we were a different sort of group of Jews. Mm. And the other thing I shall never forget that a friend from my school, who was in the same class, and we were very good friends, wanted to find out what happened. I don't know how she found out. I really don't know who told her. By that time there was there were wires that we were behind the wire, we couldn't get out.
0: This is when she'd been moved into the ghetto. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes. And then one day this friend arrives and she's standing on the other side of the wire because she was allowed to, somebody showed her, you know, where we were. And what I'll never forget is the big why. She said, Why are you here? And I said, Why am I here? I don't know. And there was something in me which almost felt ashamed. It was something in me which had no understanding of what happened. And I felt, well, maybe it was something we've done, hmm. and I don't know anything about it. Why? And that question, why, with a big W, has followed me all my life.
0: And did your, was it a conversation you were able to have with your parents? Are we here if we've done something wrong? Or is it because the Nazis are completely <laughs> anti-Semitic and want exactly. to destroy Exactly,
1: I couldn't understand. Did your parents understand. have a
0: chance to sit down and discuss it with you, or did things just move so quickly?
1: Things moved very quickly. And, and as I said, there was no understanding of it. Mm. Now, but what happened was, because we were secular, we also had a number of Catholic friends. And I always tell, you know, I now give uh, talks to schools, mm. And I always tell the young students, I have learned in my life very early on never to generalize, never, never to generalize, never attribute characteristics to a whole group of people and then blend it, they're all the same, because it just isn't, nature is not like that. Yes, it is true, Catholic Church was very anti-Semitic. We know that from history. Yes, it is true that many Catholics were anti-Semitic, but yes, it is also true that there were some who endangered their lives in order to save yeah. some Jews. And, and in a way, I think I am one of the lucky ones because my father was very concerned. I mean, he probably thought about, God knows, how he can get me out of that situation.
0: Sorry to interrupt. You were an only child. Yes. Yes.
1: And um, I don't. I'll never know what was going through in his head. But maybe he was hoping that the first thing and the first duty is to do something about me, and then they will think about themselves. Mm. But of course, the situation was already getting incredibly dangerous because in that ghetto when we were in that small little room we heard shots we heard we heard shouts Heraus, they were taking people onto trucks and deporting people from there. And you, you could there. see this and with we your couldn't, we couldn't yeah. because we were in that corner room, very small right. little room, and we were so shaking with fear. Mm. We didn't look out, but we heard the noises, and we realized what was happening. We heard the trucks moving, driving away. We heard the noises.
0: Mm. What year was this? Was this 42? Oh, no, th- no, no. Th- sorry, much earlier, earlier, much 39, earlier, 39. Much earlier. 39, that 40. That was about when well, the yeah. war
1: broke out in 39. To, sorry, so 39, 40, yeah. Very, maybe so 40. So were, were there
0: rumors going around the ghetto at that time what you thought was likely to be going on? With we the, had no idea what actually
1: was going yeah. on. We had no idea that there were concentration so camps. No, no, not a clue.
0: This wasn't and even, there were gas chambers. This wasn't even on the no, topic of conversation. No, we didn't
1: But somehow... And I'll never know until I die. (laughs) My father arranged through the help of his friends to create a new persona for me, to get a passport for me and for my aunt. My aunt was my mother's sister. By that time, her two children were also hiding with a farmer. And because my aunt was a very strong woman and my mother was totally attached to my father and she was not such a strong person. So it was decided that my aunt and I will have to get out. And how he arranged that, I shall never know. There was a factory outside of Warsaw. They were making rucksacks and leather goods Mm -hmm. for the Germans and and it was sort of a slave labor, and they were employing some of the jews from from the ghetto to help. I, how my God, when I think about it, how it was done, i I shall never know. But somehow my aunt and I went to that factory, and I remember she told everybody I was older than I actually was because I was supposed to be working. I was supposed to, and my—I always had two left hands. I couldn't even sew a button on. I mean, this was part of my nature. And there I was, as a as a slave laborer, having to put things together, which was which was quite a job. But what happened was that once a week, and there was a, a march from that factory to the ghetto to public baths. And the the Germans were very hygiene conscious, and because the conditions were pretty awful, we were, you know, full of lice and dirt and so on. Mm. So once a week, we were marched and had this public bath. And my aunt decided, or it must have been arranged through somebody that I will never know, because the public bath, the building, was on the edge Mm. of the ghetto. And on the other side of the road was the Aryan side. My aunt said, we have to make a go. Now, by that time, she already, no, she didn't have the passport. It was somebody else on the Aryan side. So
0: where were you living? The, you weren't still living in the ghetto at this time. No, 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 you, no.
1: No, we were, mar- we were in the
0: factory. Living and sleeping in the factory. Yes, yes. Right.
1: Conditions were appalling. So you'd, by
0: this time, you said cheerio to your parents.
1: I said goodbye to my parents, yes. which was, you know, and they, they were reassuring me that they were going to do everything in the power uh-huh. to maybe do the same thing. So at
0: that point, you didn't know you no, you'd no, ever see I didn't. Or, I, or... No,
1: I didn't. I didn't. And and I remember the words of my aunt strongly engraved uh, on my mind, saying, "Look, we have to do something here, which I hope you will understand." If we stay here, it's a definite death because we didn't know how long we were going to be kept there. And they were taking people from there as well and deporting them. So we were all right for the time being, but we couldn't predict what was going to happen in even two weeks' time. Sure. So she said, we have to make a go for it. We have to try and cross the road. Mm. and I. I'm not sure that I completely understood everything. And she said, you mustn't be nervous. When I give you the sign, you just come with me. And years and years later, there was a film by... Um, I think it was Polanski, I can't remember now, which described the whole thing because other people tried to do the same thing, but of course they didn't succeed. Mm. So it was a question of crossing the road to the other side. Now this sounds much more much easier said than done, because of course they had people marching backwards and forwards. They had the SS men or Gestapo man going back, uh, uh, guarding the place. Yeah. So my aunt waited, and she she must have seen that the two guys, the two guards, going backwards and forwards, stood on the corner, lighting a cigarette. She said, "Now," and shaking inside, she said, "Don't run, just walk." Normally, like you, going for a little walk in the sunshine. And that's what happened. And we managed to cross to the other side, and nobody saw us. It's just incredible. And there were people who tried to do the same, and they were shot on the spot. So again, this, this incredible coincidence in my life, when we actually got to the other side, my aunt knew where to go and who to contact. And I think it is those friends who had the passports so that if we succeed to to do that, now comes the whole business of changing my personality. My aunt, who had a very black sense of humor despite having lost her children and husband, she said to me one day when I said I became an actress, she said, well, your Oscar-winning performance was then when you when you had to when
0: you learn
1: the... that you were somebody else. Yeah. My name became Irene, Irene Irena, which is a very Polish name. Slabowska, usually it ends with a ska or ski, and I I had a whole story like a text that my father was in the army and he didn't survive, and uh, and this was uh, this was actually his new fiancée. My aunt. So there was like an actor learning a script. And I had to make sure that if I repeat it, I repeat it the same way. It was like a text because a cousin of mine tried to do the same thing and unfortunately succeeded to escape from the ghetto, go to the other side. And she made some kind of mistake when she was asked the question and she was denounced and they were killed. So, it was, it was quite miraculous.
0: When did you find out, if indeed you did find out specifically, what happened to your parents?
1: I think, I can't remember the exact moment now that somebody told us the ghetto was liquidated. Yes, we actually witnessed that. In 1942, and that is a date I do remember, there was Warsaw Uprising. Now this is on the Christian side. The Poles were hoping that the Russians were going to come and help. They did not. So there was an uprising. We were on the other side now as Poles. My aunt joined the partisans. We saw the not the fire, but we saw the smoke coming from the ghetto. The ghetto was burned. Mm. The ghetto was finished. So, uh, most of the people either died there or were deported. Mm. So, the exact number I shall never know. Mm. But the story continues, and the strange coincidences go on. As I said, my aunt joined the partisan as a Pole fighting the Germans. I don't know how long it lasted, but it didn't last very long, and the Russians did not come and help. And the whole thing was a fiasco, and of course, a lot of people got killed. And then we were taken as prisoners of war. So Polish prisoners of war, and we were evacuated to Germany to prison of war
0: camp. Mm. And they didn't know you were Jewish heritage of course at all. Not. No, otherwise, of you'd have been, course yeah. not.
1: This was all under my under the assumed name. Yeah. So look, the conditions were pretty awful, and there, was enough, there wasn't enough food, and they made me. I remember they made me on a very very strong winter's day. I had to clean the railway um, from the snow, and I had to work very hard. And my aunt somehow got to work in the kitchen, so sometimes she would smuggle a little bit of food. We were prisoners, but it wasn't Dachau. It wasn't a concentration sure. camp. There wasn't a gas chamber. We, mm. were, we were treated as prisoners.
0: Yeah. And that was bad enough.
1: It was bad enough. This yeah. was my schooling. And um, the atmosphere between the people there, and, and because I remember there was even an Italian a soldier who was arrested and, and uh, taken as prisoner. Now, I can't remember exactly how long we, we were there, but another strange coincidence happens, which is really...
0: Let's take a very quick break just to remind you, if you love the show and would like to get involved, grab some cool stuff, get shout-outs on the show, have us create your very own London Legacy show, or you meet up with us in London for a coffee or something stronger, just head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London Legacy. Okay, let's carry on with the show. Seems your life is full of strange coincidences. Complete, we haven't even spoken about ours yet with the same yeah, same completely. surname. Yeah, yes, <laughs>
1: so what happened was that one day we get a command from, from the Germans there Get on the train. We are going, and we thought, but where are we going? Well, nobody is giving us any information. We don't know. Just do what you're told, and we said, "Oh my God!" So, is is our fate going to be now like the Jews? Uh, we didn't know. And they said, "No, no, no. We are just we just evacuating the camp. The war was coming to an end, and they were not winning. And I, to this day, I'm not sure, except that. Many, many years later, my aunt who survived, and there's another story, said actually they were going to dispose of us because they didn't want, the, you know, the war was finishing, Mm, we were still enemies, and they were going to to get rid of us. So we were sitting on the train, and the train goes through Essen. Essen is a big industrial German town, and the war is more or less ending. And all of a sudden, there is an incredible noise in the sky, and American bombers are coming over, flying over, dropping bombs on the station. So, of course, the doors open because the Germans were just as frightened as we were. And everybody runs out. Everybody runs out onto the field. The, the planes then lower, they come down, they start machine gunning. So God knows how many people were killed. And I was just remember lying on the ground and saying, this is it. And some weight is lying on me. Now, this it, it sounds like a fairy tale.
0: Because sounds I'll like never a film. know.
1: Yeah, because yeah. I'll never know who this was. Accident, dead body, I don't know. I'm lying there until the whole thing is finished and the planes fly over.
0: Where was your aunt at this time? Was she with you?
1: I didn't know. You, you and I thought I her. was absolutely petrified. Mm. I didn't know where she was. And I, I really thought, well, this is it. And when the whole thing was over, and finally I hear a voice, run, 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 and my my aunt. It was my aunt. And she was obviously looking for me everywhere. And she saw this little girl lying there. She said, run, get up and run, get up and run. And we started running. And of course, by that time, the Germans kind of lost control
0: Yeah,
1: and they didn't bother anymore. So, they were
0: more concerned with their own safety than exactly, lo- looking after. Exactly. Yeah.
1: And we, we got into a sort of a little field And then we walked and we ran again. We were hungry, we were thirsty, but that that didn't matter. And we came across a little hut of German farmers, and said, "Look, could you give us some water? We'd do anything. You know, we can work. Would you give?" Of course, they obviously saw that we were prisoners. They didn't know we were Jews. They saw us as Poles, Mm. and they took us in. Mm. And that was just something incredible. So they said, yeah, if you want to help, we could use some help. My aunt then worked in the kitchen. They showed me how to milk a cow. And we stayed there with those farmers until the Americans in English came
0: to liberate us. It's just remarkable.
1: No, it is. It's it like is a just fairy tale. It's like a fairy tale, and sometimes, you know, even now when I'm retelling this to you and I have written about it, it still doesn't seem that it actually happened. Is but it still it very ha-
0: real in your head? Can you still I visualize see the, it images. And see I see it the and... images. I see the
1: images. I see images very, very clearly.
0: Yeah. Does it feel like it was you, or does it feel like you're looking at somebody else's life? Both. Mm
1: both. Sometimes I feel, oh, no, that's not me. And then, I've, and then I remember the feeling of exactly the feeling I had. And yes, yes, I went through it. I do remember. Because there was all sorts of little bits. For instance, the farmer's wife had a cousin or a nephew, I don't know who, who was a, a Wehrmacht now Wehrmacht means an ordinary soldier, a German soldier, so he wasn't a Gestapo he wasn't a Nazi. he he wore a uniform he was a German soldier, and he was in that hut and he was in the attic, hiding because by that time the Americans and the English were coming to try and and so liberate. He was scared of
0: the Allied forces coming too
1: that's right, and they came into the hut and um Of course, neither my aunt nor I would speak English. She spoke very good German. But somehow the communication was, she said then, look, I'm not German. I'm not German. I'm I'm a Pole. And I worked for this woman. I worked here on the farm. But I'm not German. I'm not German. She insisted on it. And then he said, but do you know of any Germans hiding? And she knew that that nephew was upstairs in the attic and she said no she just, how ironic she said because and I, I mean now later on many long time after that i said that that was incredible we said well why he was an ordinary guy mm. he was an ordinary guy hiding for his life yeah like like we have yeah. and we've experienced that what but the irony
0: of the fact that you don't, for want of a better word grass him up he doesn't know that you're Jewish and no. had he known the tables might have been turned while you Exactly. Were. It's just natural humanity exactly. looking after each exactly.
1: other. Exactly. And all I remember is that when the English um, soldiers uh, well, said, look, you can come with us now because there is a canteen nearby. There is a, a place where we have a lot of you know, English officers and mm-hmm. so on, and you can come with us. There will be place for you. And then the hug, which that German woman gave my aunt, because of course she understood what was happening, that I will never forget. And so we said goodbye. I mean, in a way, those Germans also saved our lives. Did
0: you appreciate at that moment in time that the, the war was over? and Absolutely. That you were-
1: and then the next coincidence starts. So my aunt again goes into the kitchen and helps in the canteen. I learned how to lay tables. <laughs> And put peanut butter on the on the table, which I've never seen before. (laughs) And we work there. We work there for quite some time. Again, time wise, time sequence. I can't remember exactly how long we've been there. But one day, one day, my aunt serves uh, breakfast to a squadron leader, frightfully sort of very English-looking gentleman and and it was eggs and bacon. And he says to her, tell the chef, this is for squadron leader Scott. He knows I don't eat bacon. And she looked a bit puzzled. And he couldn't understand or sense some sort of puzzlement on her face and said, oh, can I speak to you after breakfast? And said, to, of course, we, we were still the Poles, and we were still afraid of revealing our own identity. So they get together, the squadron leader Scott and my aunt, who, he speaks very good German, he's, she speaks very good German, and then he says to her, I noticed the kind of you were a bit puzzled when I said I don't eat bacon. Well, you know, I, I am actually Jewish, and I'm quite um, religious even though I am in a British uniform. And she just nearly collapsed. And she said, well, I am Jewish.
0: So she, this was the first yes, time. Yes. What a weight of her mind.
1: Because he said, my private mission, I work as a squadron leader squad uh-huh. for the RAF, but my private mission is to
0: help surviving Jews. Uh-huh. And were you aware at this time of the concentration camp? So that not out, really, not still not, not, yet, really, no. not
1: the extent of it.
0: So they hadn't all been liberated yet, or no, the full no, extent wasn't known no. publicly. Wow. So, so here's a Jewish commanding officer talking to your aunt, who's now come out as yes, being Jewish after all this. Yes. What a, what a relief it must have been for her to oh, be able to talk incredible. openly. it's incredible.
1: It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Again, another in- incredible coincidence. So
0: he was making it his mission to… yes.
1: Yes. Safe so he, in fact, was instrumental in arranging my escape and my coming to England. Um, he, he was still in the RAF. He was very, very busy. He made connections. And that's how I came to England.
0: So actually coming to England, you were put on a train with other children?
1: Yes. Yes. So this was arranged by Squadron Leader Scott somehow that he put me in touch with other refugees uh-huh. that he obviously had quite a bit of knowledge about. And, and there were quite a few of us. And we all came together.
0: That's remarkable. Do, where, where was the journey? Where did you get the train from? Well,
1: remember? we came, when we came to England, yeah. you mean, they arranged, I mean, everything was beautifully organized somehow. Well, there was this um, hostel, the refugee hostel in Reading, which was run, by two Jewish German, um who were educationalists. I mean, they were sort of very much, they were both teachers.
0: But how did you get over to the UK? Was well, it, this get was
1: a, this was arranged by by Squadron Leader Scott. But this
0: was, you got a, a boat over from,
1: from? No, train.
0: You got a train? Train, yes. But you had to get a boat or a over from um, mainland Europe somehow to get well, to? Well, I
1: think it must have been train and flight. Yeah. Train and flights. But we, so we got to Reading. And I stayed in this hostel with another friend of mine. Well, she wasn't a friend then. She was a Hungarian refugee, Hungarian girl. And of course, I didn't speak Hungarian, she didn't speak Polish, and we didn't speak English. We spoke very bad German together. And um, we became very, very close friends. And I remember... We we worked very hard and studied very hard and really tried to get the language under our belts. And then one morning I remember waking up saying, "I dreamt in English. I can now speak English." <laughs> and she, her name was Edith, became very much like my sister. And unfortunately, she died now about fifteen years ago. Mm. But she was really like, like a member of my family.
0: Yeah, and. Do you do you know what happened to Was it Squadron Leader Scott? Did he say? Do you say well,
1: was Squadron Leader Scott? Eventually, when he came back to England, I used to spend my holidays with him and and his wife. Uh-huh. And um, I mean, they they actually wanted to adopt me, but I wasn't so keen. <laughs> I don't know. I I I mean, of course, by then I knew my parents were killed. Mm. And I, I was still not completely over it. And the whole idea of calling somebody else my mother or father, I couldn't face mm-hmm. it. But they did look after me, mainly during the holidays.
0: That's wonderful. Well, it's a, it's a quite remarkable story. And just thinking, there's no there's no parallel with today what's going on but we talk about coronavirus and we're losing our freedom and the ability to make decisions (laughs) and fend for ourselves and all this sort of stuff well you know there is
1: there is something in me i do still like life i do but at the same time i am i'm not negative but i am a realist if coronavirus gets me right now I was at what I've lived. I've lived a long time, and I've lived through many, many different periods. And as I said, miraculous escapes. And I've been very lucky, and I've had a wonderful marriage. And so, if it comes to get me, well,
0: well, I'm glad we're seeing you today because, as, <laughs> as, as I say next,
1: okay, not today. Ne- next week,
0: I think all over seventies are going to be in lockdown. So yes, you're not gonna, I know. But um, it, it just strikes me to listening to your remarkable story and what's going on today, and the f- it's obviously it's not good news. The coronavirus, it's not very pleasant, and people are you know are losing their lives and all that. But it, the comparison between what your generation went through and what you you, know, you went through, you know, and losing your Mum and your dad and your nieces and nephews well, yes, and your family. Yes, and
1: what I find very upsetting, again, I mean, we talked about the rise of antisemitism mm. and so on, but what I find really, really upsetting, that occasionally, even people who admit the horrors of the Holocaust, and I met it before because I was in a play which dealt with a subject, and and there were two different attitudes, strangely enough, in Germ- between Germany and England. In England, we used to have talks with the young people about this play. The play dealt with the Channel Islands and the fact that there was a collaboration. It's not a very interesting and nice uh, period of history. They collaborated with the German, apparently, in the Channel Islands. and And, of course, there was a character I played a character similar to me that the director-writer put in specially. And it was a very interesting play. And discussions afterwards were quite interesting. And I heard people saying, well, why is it the Jews think they're the only people who Mm suffered? When in the history we've had Rwanda... We've had many, many, I mean, what's happening in Syria oh, now, it's you know, that the, the world is full of horrible tragedies. So why is it the Jews think they're the only people who suffer? And after that, you know, I shut up for a long time and I, I just couldn't face it. And then I was thinking and thinking and thinking about it and of course came to the conclusion what is Distinctive and so different from any other Holocaust. I mean, there was an Armenian Holocaust. There were two million people killed in Armenia. But that was a religious war. It was between the Christians and the Turks. So you look at the world and there were horrendous things and still are happening. Why? Knowing why doesn't make the action better. But at least you know why. Tribes. So we have the Catholics and Protestants, religion. We have the Sunni and the Shiites. So, of course, they fight each other. Um, Land is another reason. There usually is a reason which, as I said, doesn't condone the results. The Holocaust was different. The Holocaust was a determined effort to annihilate a whole Mm. race of people.
0: Premeditated.
1: Premeditated beautifully arranged, as only, you know, the Germans knew how to do that. That's what makes it different. What makes it different is that my two little cousins who were hiding with a farmer, both blonde, blue-eyed, Aryan-looking, something happened we'll never know. They were denounced. And the guy and the Gestapo men came in and shot them on the spot, eight, eight, and six. That's What makes it different? And and I and I wish people could realize it. The invention of a special gas in a civilized country that produced Beethoven and Schiller and many wonderful people, that they calculated how many bodies can be gassed in one go. That's what makes it different. And we forget about it.
0: Well the aim of talking to you today is so that it is it is a legacy that you're leaving and that it's not forgotten and never forgotten because I know having read, you've written two books by the way which I think we should recommend to people. One is called Bits and Pieces of My Life by Ruth Posner which is a, your autobiography in, in essence which tells the story of your escape from um, from Warsaw and uh, coming to live in in the UK and moving around the world with your husband for his work all over the place. He also goes on to tell the tragic tale of your your son as well. Jeremy, I don't know if you want to touch on that part of your life as well if you feel comfortable and i feel
1: quite comfortable because i have been very involved with this whole uh, process of addiction and trying to understand the tragedy of that disease and my son who was a musician who was an incredibly bright intelligent and who'd actually talked he talked about it Um, And he knew a lot of people who were quite well-known musicians, and when we lived in New York, he even knew, I can't remember the name of that writer, but he was very, very famous in the 60s, and they were all into taking drugs. Mm -hmm. And it was almost rationalized. It was a sort of, well, it's less harmful than drinking, and what society should do they should legalize it, and I had many discussions with my son about it. Who I said was actually very bright. And when I had when I said discussions, no, they were too emotional, so there were arguments. And I, and I used to say, of course, you are rationalizing this to make it easy for yourself. He said, no, no, you will never understand it. You don't understand whether uh, the, the the way the money is being. Um, used and the crime which is perpetrated because of the drugs, that if drugs were legalized and some help given, then all the corruption, all the money and all the crimes would go away. And and I never agreed with him. Now, up to a point I can now see, I can now see that. Um, of course, a lot, because Jeremy used to say, I will give up when I'm ready. I'm not ready now. Now, who knows whether, again, this was another excuse. Mm. Who knows that? He used to write poems, he used to write songs, because, because he was a very good musician, and, um, and, and it was very tragic. And so, because he used to say, of course, pure heroin will not kill you. What kills you is because of the money, uh, which is being made on it and because it's mixed with other yeah, things. Yeah. Who knows whether this is actually what happened to him? I will never know. But that's what happened and it's very, very tragic and it's something you never get over mm. and especially when this is self-imposed. And so, so when I started writing about this, I felt I can't just write about my story because he was very much part of my story. Of course. I have to expose the whole business of addiction.
0: Yeah. And there's an interesting, you make an interesting point in the book, Bits and Pieces of My Life, when you're talking about the struggles you were having with Jeremy, and the fact that there's this question of whether Holocaust survivors pass on some of their guilt to their children, and have different expectations of their children as they're growing up. How how did that impact your relationship?
1: That's a very interesting thing you've just said. Because when he was quite young, I remember he had a toy, which was a tank, like a German tank, and there was a, a little bit su- like swastika on mm-hmm. it. And it just came I, I didn't rationalize it. I, I came out before I had time to sing, and I said, "I don't want it here. Throw it away. I don't want any of it." And his response was quite shocking. And he said, don't blame me for the Second World War, because he must have known something. And I didn't realize that this actually must have had quite some impact. I am not saying that the whole business of addiction was due b- b- to that. I'm not saying that. But one never knows. In fact, I did read a book long time ago, and I can't even remember the name of the author, who does make some kind of link between Holocaust survivors, you know, the people, I mean, kids who are born in a family of Holocaust survivors, some of them took to drugs. And maybe this is why a lot of parents never wanted to talk about it. I don't know enough to be able to theorize.
0: Mm. But you make the point in the book that he 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 was—he struggled from a fairly early, yes. early on when he moved to yes. New York. Yes. And then you travel. Around Europe and New Zealand and Holland and Denmark. And you moved all over. Yes. But a lot of people move all over. So, you know, that's not unusual to take your young family with you when you're being positioned around the world. And he was just bringing his addiction with him, wasn't he, wherever you move to?
1: Yeah.
0: So you shouldn't blame yourself, I think, is what I'm saying. I mean, an addiction is an addiction, whether it's drugs, whether it's porn, or whether it's, you know, know, gambling or whatever.
1: Yes, well, I was very involved with FA, which is Family Anonymous, mm. and uh, my husband Michael just didn't want to touch it because he doesn't like all these sort of groups, you know, where you where you have confessionals, you know, yeah. my name is so and so, and I'm, I'm an alcoholic. That's right, <laughs> and I'm an alcoholic, but. Eventually, he changed his mind, and we did go to meetings, both f a, which is family anonymous and f a, uh, and the Addict anonymous as well. And we learned a hell of a lot from it. And one thing which drops off is a sense of guilt, because you you meet people, especially in family anonymous. You meet people from different walks of life and different class. I don't like to mention that term, but since this is England, there is class. (laughs) And so you meet all these totally different people with the same problem, exactly the same problem. So it can't be what you did. No. So the guilt is being lifted off one's conscience.
0: Yeah, and so it should be. And so it should be, because addiction, as you say, goes across all classes, all genres, all types of people. Uh, and it's a terrible thing, and to endure that, uh, you know, reading your your book again, bits and pieces of my life, uh, it's something another tragedy that you've had to put up with. So you're a very yeah. re- you're a very remarkable lady in in every respect. Because in the middle of that, you've obviously, you know, you not-
1: yes, I, but but as I said, I, I am I am very unlucky in many ways, but I'm also lucky in other ways, mm. you know. Michael, I've been married now for 70 years in September.
0: Well, that's remarkable in itself in today's day and age.
1: <laughs> in September, yeah. it will be 70 congratulations. So, 70. I know, medal for survival. <laughs> but actually, maybe because we moved around so much, it was a question of make or break. I don't know. I mean, it wasn't a kind of smooth ride, you know, never a crossword between yeah. us. It wasn't that at all. We love to argue. Um, but <laughs> we survived a lot of things and therefore we you know we mean it means a lot
0: yeah so let's go back the other book you've written is called thoughts and reflections of an of an aging actress now when did you write this you wrote this uh 10 years ago yes something like that so you were an aging actress 10 15 years ago (laughs) (laughs) You're still an aging actress. You're still, you're still working, aren't you? Or you're still receiving not really little not bits really. here and there? You were doing commercials, I think, up until...
1: Not really, no. not now, no. Commercials are really passé because it's a very competitive field. I mean, this is really what I was writing about, that um, if you are an actress still, after a certain age, unless you are a big name, yeah, unless you're Maggie Smith or Judi Dench, you know, they can create work for themselves. And of course, they make a huge contribution to whatever they are in. But if you are what I call the jobbing actor, uh, who, which is what I was, even though I was lucky in having a two place written for me, but still, it was a job. And I've done quite a lot. What is left for you when you reach a certain age is commercials, mm. only commercials. And it, I mean, even, you know, grannies, you sort of, well, or they expect a certain type of granny and you're not the stereotypical <laughs> granny. So, you know, not a granny, great granny. <laughs> so there are no really roles and and it's and commercials are incredibly, they can be funny, but they also can be They sound very- quite
0: absurd. Le- reading some of the examples of some of the uh, auditions you went to, they sound utterly absurd, some they of them. They are absurd. You give us one or two examples of some of the ones you've been to. Some of the auditions you went to for the commercials. Can you remember any?
1: Well, I mean, I, do, I don't know if I had written about this, but I do remember one which was completely ridiculous. And that was for incontinent pads. Lovely.
0: <laughs> Go on, you've started so you're finished. Carry on.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I saw the funny side in it. Of course, what makes it serious is that you get well paid and and the, the payment actually i think supersedes the the work i mean you get a lot of money for some for one day shooting and and then you come to a room uh, to audition and of course you see other old actresses sitting for the same thing i used to see the sunny the the funny part of uh-huh. it you know and having read the script and the kind of things you have to say I would say, well, now I need an incontinent (laughs) path because it made me laugh so much. Whereas there were other people who felt the same, but there were also other women who felt very serious about it. And they were in competition Mm. because of the money. So, uh, yeah, the incontinent pads was hilarious. So the old woman is going out and she's taking her granddaughter out for tea. And they go to this cafe and they sit and they chat, and then she said, "You know, I'm so lucky now. I don't really have to worry where the next nearest Lou is because I'm wearing one of those incontinent yeah. parts. I mean, Shakespeare couldn't
0: have said <laughs> that. Beautifully put. Exactly what you tell your family, isn't it? <laughs> and you got the part. Did you? No, you didn't get the part <laughs> because dear. I laughed so much. <laughs> but your your book does recount numerous episodes when your agents call you up and said can you go along for this audition can you go along for that audition yes and a good many of them unfortunately you did you, you didn't get so you didn't no. become famous for your in content but
1: i have been lucky you know i'd spent i had one season short season with the rsc with the royal shakespeare company mm-hmm. when i uh, had a nice part in a play called *The Book*. I was in Bristol, Old Vic, in uh, Nottingham Playhouse, um, so I've been around.
0: I've been around. <laughs> and also your performance at the O2. Tell us about that.
1: Oh well, that was <laughs> 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 that was a combination, combination of two. Um, they were looking for an actress with some kind of dance movement, uh-huh. not dance movement background. And so I, I was called by somebody who I actually worked with when I was still a dancer, and he was one of the directors. But he said, I've got to audition because, of course, there are other people for the same job. And, well, I got that one. And that was hilarious. I mean, that really was. What did the
0: role in. in, So I was
1: Mother Millennium. Mother Millennium. millennium. Because, of course, it was
0: the Millennium Dome, which Yes, yes, yes. To start with. Yes, yes.
1: So, I mean, I have to say that the job was for a whole year, until year 2000. Mm -hmm. And, um, well, there were problems, and I got ill, and it was very demanding in lots of ways. And and after a while, when the excitement war has worn off, it was a bit boring as well.
0: <laughs> well, I suppose anything repetitive becomes a bit boring yes, after a while, yes. doesn't it? Yeah. So what are you up to nowadays, apart from obviously relaxing? Well, up to, now,
1: your- up to now, actually, what I have been doing and quite enjoying it in some strange ways, because it puts me in touch with a world I wouldn't otherwise know which is the world of young people and schools. Mm -hmm. So I work for the Holocaust Educational Trust, Mm -hmm. and they send me, I'm not the only one, they have quite a few survivors, and they do a remarkable work, really remarkable with young people. And they send me to various institutions and and sometimes schools. So, for instance, I gave a talk in schools with only black students, well, where would I come in touch with that? And it was just very nerve-wracking, but it was incredible. Talking to the 14-year-olds, all black, sometimes racially mixed, sometimes not, I find that incredible.
0: And this is you going in telling your story of um, the Holocaust. Yes. And how do they tend to, because this this is now yet another generation remote from
1: And no, what I usually try. Well, I usually, again, try by saying, well, I know you would rather maybe do uh, play football rather than listen to an old lady uh, telling you about horror stories of, of her life. But what is interesting is that there's something that we can all learn from it. And again, we mentioned the whole notion of hatred, and when hatred becomes an ideology, and why hatred mm. and, do you and you then find of the, course, the racism comes into it as well,
0: yeah, and do you find they they're more engaged than you give them? you think they're going to be
1: unbelievably so, Good. and this is what gives me just gives me a lot of satisfaction, mm. and I mean, hope. there was one. There was one um, school where it took long time to engage them because, and I don't blame them, they're 14 years old and they do have it as a subject at school, but it just took a little while to, to get going. And when it finally did, they were incredibly engaged. And at the end, uh, it was incredible. This young boy, 14-year-old young black boy comes and says, "Can I give you a hug?" Oh. And this was worth everything. Yeah. I mean, just absolutely. You know, I don't want to get too sentimental about it, but it was just unbelievable.
0: Mm. Makes it worthwhile, I suppose. Hasn't it? given it, giving up your time. I mean, the, uh, the Holocaust Education Trust does some wonderful work. They do uh, they excellent do, work. Do, do some amazing. They, work.
1: they even take they they take some of the kids to. Um, Places like Dachau and uh, yeah, some of the concentration Yeah, I think there. I
0: said to you on the phone before when we were arranging to meet that I yeah, know yeah. A, a young uh, young lady who regularly, t- not Jewish, Polish, but not Jewish, regularly takes children, school well, children, this
1: is another thing to you, Auschwitz you, yes, and yeah. now on education. This is trips. another thing which I want to point out that incredible thing that many, many of the young people are not Jewish. Mm. And that's really incredible. Yeah. And Fantastic. they're interested, because they're interested in the concept, again, of hatred, which becomes politics.
0: Well, Ruth, I'm mindful that um, we've been going on for over an hour, and the phone keeps ringing, so you're obviously very popular. You've obviously got your agent onto something.
1: It's the coronavirus. <laughs> it's the
0: coronavirus. <laughs> I better get out of here. We're all doomed. It's been lovely. Thank you very much for uh, welcoming me into you your home. Thank you very much. Keep telling your story as, as often as you can to as many people as you can. And by virtue of doing this podcast, um, it'll reach even more people, hopefully, because people listen to, I know you're not going to believe this, but people listen to this podcast right around the world, not just in this country, but London, the UK, America, Australia, all around the world, people listen to it. So if people want to get in touch with you, How do they do so? How can they communicate? Because I know you said you're very big on email. Email
1: is the best thing. I'm not a great mobile user, even though I just got a new mobile because mine was so out of date. Uh So maybe I will become more so, but landline or email.
0: So do you remember your email address, what it is?
1: My email yes. address you, is... Do you want to give it out? Yeah, yeah. it's ruthposner at virginmedia.com.
0: That's P-O-S-N-E-R, R-U-T-H, P-O-S-N-E-R.
1: At virginmedia.com. At
0: virginmedia.com. And we should just, so if anyone wants to get in touch, and by the way, you should also pick up Ruth's uh, two books, which are on Amazon, Bits and Pieces of My Life, an autobiography by Ruth Posner, which tells the whole background story, as we said, and Ruth, uh, her escape from the ghetto and her trials and tribulations in escaping from um, from the Holocaust and coming and starting a new life over here and then with your husband and then obviously the, the terrible story of your son, Jeremy. And then the other book, Thoughts and Reflections of an Aging Actress, also by Ruth Posner, which is looking back on your life and times as a, as, as an aging actress, film star, <laughs> wannabe film star. Both, <laughs> both very good books, which you can get on Amazon. I should also say, which we didn't say, um, live on on the podcast is your surname Posner is the same as my mother's maiden name Posner. Yes. Although my mother's maiden name has an e in it, P O S E N E R, and we believe
1: P O S
0: E N yeah Posner as opposed to Posner, I suppose. And we believe that my mother's far my grandfather on my mother's side, his family came from Posnam. Well, we're now coming to the end of our uh, conversation with uh, with Ruth. Uh, And as with all guests, I always ask them, to mention one or two places that are particularly personal to them in London now Ruth can't can't remember a particular gallery so she's just going to mention a general area aren't you Ruth a particular place I know
1: place. I know unfortunately I have reached that age now where you remember in your mind you have a picture of something but you can't put the name to it and it's incredible we know it's a place that does, does exhibitions it's
0: very nice but we don't know where it is
1: <laughs> but the, the, I mean the area I quite like is the whole area of South Bank and and the theatre land.
0: <laughs> what well, what is it that appeals to you particularly about that area?
1: I, th- I think that the structure, the architecture, the space, yes, the the, the breath of air, yes um which is different from anywhere else uh mm. it is one of i think a few of our was. guests have actually and lots s- of other places maybe but you know when i go to bed tonight the names will come to it's me it's going to be
0: too late then <laughs> because <laughs> we'll have done the recording
1: <laughs> i know so we have to stop there
0: <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to stop there but the south bank is a particular favorite of mine because I love being alongside the River Thames. Exactly. And you've got the beautiful walk you can do down the side there. You've got the museum. You've got the Royal Festival Hall. You've got all the booksellers and the buskers. Yeah. And all the the architecture looking down the river. It's just stunning. I'm glad you're So I'm with you on that one. Good. So shall we finish it there then? (laughs) (laughs) Ruth, it's been an absolute pleasure. So So, thank you so much for your time.
1: Well, thank you, I am, I'm so pleased that you were interested and and also pleased not... to have met you. Thank you so <laughs> Likewise. much. Likewise,
0: and we'll find out. And now I it, know what Michael a podcast is. Michael can tell is. us where Posner or Posner comes from. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get to the bottom of our relationship one day.
1: And I now know <laughs> what a <the> podcast is.
0: <laughs> now you know what a podcast is as well. I absolutely love creating your London legacy for you. And the feedback and testimonials are awesome. But as it grows, so it consumes more and more resources. So I've joined forces with Patreon, a really cool place where you can show your love and support from just as little as $2 a month as a silver Londoner, right up to $300 per month where you get the crown jewels. Each level of subscription opens up a host of exclusive extra goodies, events, bonus shows and sponsorship opportunities only available via via Patreon. I do hope you'll continue to support what we're doing here. I'm so grateful for whatever you feel able to give. So please head over to www.patreon.com forward slash yourlondonlegacy. That's www.patreon.com forward slash yourlondonlegacy.